Mark chapter 11, verses 12 to 25. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he is teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you've made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, Whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. When Jesus cursed the fig tree and it died, it probably would have got the greenies jumping up and down about that and probably the bloke who owned the fig tree might have been jumping up and down about it too. But it was all worth it because we get a couple of really key lessons out of this. Uh, we, we covered the first lesson last week. It was a warning. It was a warning against having a false sense of security in fruitless religion. Uh, many people who claim to be Christians are much like that fig tree, all show they appear to be all lush and spiritual, but they don't bear any fruit. And of course, when we're talking about fruit, we're talking about, biblically, we're always talking about fruit of the Spirit. Right? We're talking about the fruit of a changed and redeemed life, the, the fruit of righteousness. And many people who claim to be Christians, well, they're actually no different to the world around them. They live as children of the devil for six and a half days of the week and then they might front up to church for a little while and, and feel that they've fulfilled all religious righteousness and they go away feeling, ah, I'm all good with God again, right, back into what I was doing and just go back to the same thing they were doing before and they do this week after week after week. Some people don't even go to church. It's just like, well, I believe in Jesus, so Jesus will forgive me for all of these things that I've done wrong and I'll just keep doing them. But the thing is, Jesus didn't save us so that we can just simply go on sinning like we've always been doing. Jesus saved us to be fruitful. He saved us to live a life filled with the Holy Spirit and producing the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, 
self-control, faithfulness. Right, so that, that was the first lesson. Fruitless religion, no matter how spiritual it may appear, it will not save us. And the second lesson is what we're getting in today's message, and it's all about prayer. And it might seem like this is a vastly different topic, but it's not. Uh, last week, that, that what we learned last week about fruitless religion must shape and form how we pray. Right? God, it isn't, God isn't interested in prayer that's an expression of fruitless religion. God wants our prayers to be fruitful too. But before we begin this lesson on prayer, let's begin with a prayer. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, you taught your disciples about prayer and your words continue to teach us some 2,000 years later. Lord, our desire is to be a people who pray well. We want to pray as you would have us pray. So, Lord, as we study your word today, our request is a simple one. Teach us how to pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Righto. So, the disciples were amazed that in one day the fig tree had withered away to its roots. Now, they'd never seen anything like it. They'd seen lots of miracles from Jesus, but they'd never seen that one. And so Jesus took the opportunity to teach them about prayer and the power of prayer and about praying in faith and what that looks like. Now, unfortunately, today this passage of Scripture has pretty much become the go-to passage for a very selfish form of prayer, uh, which, which forms a large part of prosperity theology, right? So some people see this, this very scripture that we're reading today as the scriptural foundation for the whole name it and claim it thing, right? So these people believe, just ask God for what you want, believe that you've got it, and you'll have it. And then, of course, if your prayer isn't answered, well, you obviously doubted or your faith wasn't strong enough. And you might even hear people say, oh, we're believing for a miracle. We're believing for this. We're believing for that. And what they're doing is they're trying to speak what they want into being. And if we take this reading out of its context, I can see how some people can come to that position. And that's why it's really important we don't do that. Today, we're going to dig deeper. We're going to look at what Jesus really said. We're going to look at what Jesus fully said. And we're going to keep it in the context in which Jesus put it. Right? So right at the beginning, I'm giving you the heads up that some of this might question what you've been told about prayer in the past. Um, and that's because the structure of how this is written is really important. And we shouldn't leave any of it out. The account of the killing of the fig tree, which forms Jesus' lesson on prayer, is actually divided into two. And right in the middle of it, we've got Jesus driving the traders out of the temple. So do you think that perhaps Jesus driving the traders out of the temple might have something important to teach us on prayer? Too right it does. And because Jesus put it together, we're going to keep it together 
And we're going to talk about the significance of what Jesus did at the temple for our prayer life. So, the first lesson on prayer might sound like a really obvious one, but it's have faith in God. Now, that might seem like a very obvious statement when it comes to prayer. And yet, having faith in God is one of the most misunderstood concepts in the church. The Greek word pistis means belief, faith, trust. But often when we pray, we get confused about what faith is about. Jesus told us to have faith in God. Right? He didn't tell us to have faith in what we're asking for. He didn't tell us to have faith in our prayer. He didn't even tell us to have faith about God. He told us to have faith in God. Now, you might be sitting there wondering, well, what's the difference between having faith about God and having faith in God? Well, let's see how the meaning of verse 23 changes, depending on whether we have faith about God or whether we have faith in God. Jesus said, have faith in God. And then, then he went on, it straight into verse 23, truly I say to you, Whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Now, if I just believe about God, if I just have faith about God, the focus of verse 23 and the outcome of whether my prayer will be answered or not tends to focus on me and it becomes about me and about what I want, and about what I believe about God, right? So if I just have faith about God, it comes down to, well, what do I believe about God? What do I believe that God can do? Well, I believe God can do anything. And so provided I have faith, and provided I have enough faith, I can even say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and it will happen. It's about believing that God has the power to do whatever task I'm going to ask of him and that he will do it. Right? That's, that's where we get to if I have faith about God. Let me give you a, a machinery example. Right, so let's say I want to push over a tree. Um, I've got a little skid steer loader, weighs less than three tonne. It's only 60-odd horsepower. What do I believe that my little skid steer loader can do? Well, I, can, I believe it can push over a tiny tree, maybe a shrub or a tiny tree. But I know that if I take it out into one of Ken's paddocks and want to push down one of his trees, I'm going to have a lot of trouble with it. I'm not going to be able to push it over because I don't believe that it has the power or the weight or the traction to achieve it. But if I borrow somebody else's Caterpillar D10, which these days weigh, what, about 70 tonne or more, and they're over 600 horsepower, what do I believe about a D10? Well, I believe it's got oodles of power. It'll handle just about any tree that I throw at it. Not all of them, but just about any of them. I believe that it has the power to do the job. I believe about this machine that it has the power to do it, and so I operate that machine to achieve what I want to achieve. And for some people, their prayer life 
their faith is all about God, right? They put themselves in the position of being the operator and God is some powerful machine, some kind of powerful machine that is at my disposal. And they so what do they believe about God? Right, we believe God is almighty, God is all-powerful, God is able to achieve anything. And so they pray for what they want and they expect that God will, will do it. That's where you get to if you believe about God. But Jesus didn't tell us to have faith about God. He told us to have faith in God. And that's a very different concept. Having faith in God is where the machinery example totally breaks down. It, it comes to the end. Unless, you, of course, you have a fully automated machine that will take you where you don't even know and it'll achieve things that you didn't even plan for it to achieve. And that's a scary thought. Having faith in God impacts our prayer life long before we ever ask for anything. In fact, having faith in God totally determines the type of prayers that we're going to begin to pray in the first place. See, it's not about God being able to achieve what we want. It's about God revealing his will to us. Whether it's something we want or whether it's something we don't want. Now, that's a scary concept. Because something I've discovered is that God's will is very often very contrary to my will. And what God wants of us is very different to what we want of our own lives. But then we trust in God enough to pray for what God wants, even if it's not what I want, because we have enough faith in God to believe that God's will is better than my will. Jesus had faith in God. Think about when he prayed at the Garden of Gethsemane. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. You see, Jesus had faith in God. He didn't, he didn't seek what he himself wanted. Yes, he was open with, with his heavenly Father and said, Father, Abba, Father, save me from this if this is possible. But then he said, but not my will, your will be done. He was praying for his father's will to be done. And even though his father's will meant a torturous death for himself, that remained his prayer. Your will be done. You see, having faith in God means that, that we trust that what God has determined will come to pass. We trust that, that God is able to do anything if it is his will. You know, one of the exciting things about being a disciple of Jesus is that God wants to involve us in what he's doing. God doesn't want us to just do his will. He wants us 
to seek his will. And he wants us to pray for his will to be done. Now, that's a profound mystery to me. Why would God do something like that? Why would God do that? If God is God, he could just make his will happen just like that. Why does he have the need to involve us in seeking his will? That's a, mess. That's a question you can keep pondering because I don't have an answer. Like when I said it's a mystery, that I'm, I'm serious. That's a profound mystery to me. But isn't it a marvellous blessing? Isn't it an amazing blessing? That God wants to involve you and me in praying for his kingdom work to be done. What a blessing that is. By the way, the, the example of the mountain being thrown into the sea is actually a really good example. Why would any of us ever ask for that? Unless we're showing off or wanting to um, get ourselves a, um, our own island, perhaps. Uh, wh why would we do that? The only reason that I can think of, any good reason why we would ever pray for a mountain to be taken up and thrown into the sea is if God told us to pray for that. You see, if God had a purpose in doing that, if God had a purpose in shifting a mountain from where it is to the sea somewhere, and he then asked us to pray for that, well, that would be a very good reason to pray for it. It's like when, when God told Moses to speak to the rock and tell it to give water. What reason would Moses have for choosing to do it that way, to give water to people, to speak to the rock, excepting for the fact that God told him to do it? In the end, he ended up being disobedient and he struck it with his stick, but regardless, the only reason was because God told him. Which brings us to the second point. When we pray, we should be praying in accordance with the will of God. Um, some of you looking out there are old enough to remember the old Janis Joplin song. Oh Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes-Benz? Who, who, know, who knows that song? Come on, put up your hand. Yes, you're all old. Put up, any of the young ones know it? No, no. My friends drive old Porsches. I must make amends. I think she, she then goes on, Oh, Lord, won't you get me a colour TV? Now, now kids, you've got to remember, this is, this is in the era where colour TVs were a new invention. Did you know t televisions used to be black and white? Like when I grew up, TVs were black and white. And nobody ever had a second one. If they did, they were just the most richest people in the whole wide world. But then they brought colour televisions. <gasps> right? So, but, but some of us, for some of us, that's the extent of our prayer life. Lord, give me. Give me more. Give me more. Give me more. Give me more rain. Give me good crops. Give me fat cattle. Give me a bigger house. Give me a faster car. Give me a better job. Give me a skinnier waistline. Give me a better car. Give, me, give my family better health. Give my friend a longer life. Give me, give me, give me. And, of course, Jesus said, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received it and it'll be yours. And so we start going, well, I'm believing for this. I'm believing for that. Well, why wouldn't we? But the thing is, prayer is supposed to be a two-way communication. And this is what we tend to forget. Prayer 
isn't about us giving our instructions to God. Prayer isn't phoning through an order, like ringing up the Chinese restaurant and saying, look, I'll have this, this and this, thanks. And God isn't some kind of machine for us to operate. I reckon this is what prayer is supposed to look like. As we live day by day in the presence of God, and as we learn more about God and more about his ways by reading the scriptures and dwelling on his word, our hearts become more and more in tune with God. In Ephesians and Jude, we're told to pray in the Spirit. What do you think that looks like? I think it means don't pray for our own desires, but pray for the things that God is seeking. Prayer should be just as much or maybe more about seeking the will of God rather than us telling God our will. And so the fourth lesson is what we learn at the temple. Remember I said before that this reading was split in half? Half of it's, and it's got this interaction of Jesus with the people at the temple in the middle where he threw, threw the traders out and whatever. The name it and claim it fraternity completely ignores this part of the lesson of the fig tree and therefore Jesus' lesson on prayer. Um, we forget that, that it brackets this whole episode in the temple that reveals what wrong prayer is all about. Wrong prayer is self-centred and unfruitful. When Jesus told them that the temple was supposed to be a place for prayer for all nations to come, but, it, but that it had become a den for robbers, he was talking about the way they'd turned the place into a place of commerce and greed, sure enough. It had become a place that excluded the foreigner and excluded the vision for the expanding kingdom of God, sure enough. But as we discovered last week, Jesus' chief concern here, which, which is revealed in Jeremiah where he's quoting about what it means to be a den of robbers, Jesus' concern is that our hearts be aligned with God's heart. His concern, and therefore our concern should be, is for the foreigner and the widow and the orphan and for justice and mercy. What do you suppose that God might want us to be praying about? Ourselves? Well, yeah, there is a place for that. But we tend to major on that. Something that I'm learning is that when it comes to prayer, I believe God wants our vision to be so much bigger than what it is and that he wants us to be praying for kingdom-sized things. Let's make our prayers bigger. Let's begin praying for things of the kingdom of God. And do you know where that starts? Right here with the transformation of ourselves. Fruitful prayer comes from a godly heart and a pure heart. 
Verse 25 often gets overlooked by the Name It and Claim It crew. It says, And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Sometimes people tell us that our prayers aren't answered because we've got some kind of unforgiven sin in our life. And there may be some truth in this. But what Jesus is is chiefly saying here is that our forgiveness is dependent upon our forgiveness of others. Verse 26, which we didn't read this morning, um, which your Bible may or may not have, states it more bluntly. Uh, But before we look at it, let's just talk about that. Did you know that some Bibles do have verse 26 and some don't? Yes. Roy knows. Yep. Why is that? Why do some Bibles have verse 26 and others don't? Well, I'll give you a very brief lesson on, on how we get our scriptures today. When the editors of our various Bibles put them together, you, you realise that they're all translations from the Greek, hey? And they're all translated from, from source material. Now, these are ancient manuscripts we're talking about. Ancient manuscripts, handwritten in Greek. And there are many, many ancient manuscripts. Some of them are fragments, only small pieces, little bits. Some of them are pretty much complete. And some of the manuscripts have verse 26. Some of them don't. And the reason that most of our modern translations of the Bible don't print verse 26 although most of them will include it in a little footnote down the bottom, right? So you'll discover that with a few passages of Scripture, there will be a verse which is missing, but you'll usually find it in a footnote down the bottom saying some manuscripts includes this verse here. But the reason that it's not included in the main part of the text is because it's not found in the the oldest and the most reliable manuscripts. And so biblical scholars believe that the original Gospel of Mark didn't have verse 26, but it got added later with other handwritten copies. Um, why would it have been added later? Because it, it's, it appears in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus is saying the same stuff. Okay, so some people might have thought, oh, this is missing, I'll add this bit in. Right? But, but what it says is just the logical outcome of verse 25. It says, but if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven Forgive your trespasses. Wow, that's a pretty cool, pretty hard-hitting lesson on the need to forgive, isn't it? Um, and usually when people preach on this passage, they, they try to explain it away. But I'm not going to do that. I'm going to leave that as blunt as what it is. And to, to give us the heads up, hey, just how important it is that we forgive others. Now, whether or not it was originally in the Gospel of Mark, it doesn't matter because, as I said, it is included in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus did say it. And he said it in in the Matthew. It's included there where Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray the Lord's Prayer. But you hear what Jesus is saying. Praying with a kingdom vision begins with a transformation of ourselves. Because God has forgiven us, we must become godly ourselves. 
Our God is a forgiving God and he wants us as his children to be a forgiving people. And our ongoing forgiveness depends on us forgiving others. See, when we pray, the Lord wants us to be fruitful. He wants us to be pure in heart. And for that to happen, firstly, we need to be forgiven. That's how we get right with God. We get forgiven of our sins and he makes us pure in heart. But as part of this ongoing purity is for us to also become a people who forgive. Righteous prayer, godly prayer, spiritual prayer, fruitful prayer is praying in faith and with the vision of the kingdom of God. I thought we might finish off today by praying together the prayer that Jesus taught us. You got it? We're going to have it up on the screen there? Okay. Let's, let's pray this together. And let's not just say it. You know, sometimes I think when, we, when people as a church say the Lord's Prayer, that's all they do. They say it. Let's pray it. I might actually, we might actually do it a bit slower than we sometimes do as we think about some of these phrases as we pray. Let's pray together. And, and I want to hear you guys praying too. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Save us from the time of trial and deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power and the glory are yours now and forever. Amen. There's a, there's a lot we can learn from that prayer. Um, yeah, I mentioned before that, yeah, we should pray for things for ourselves, but it should be a minor part of our prayer. Well, we pray there. Give us today our daily bread. Give us today enough to get by. That's, that's our prayer there. But look at how much of it is seeking God. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. It's a great prayer. Has anybody got any questions? Why is it a great prayer? Mainly because Jesus taught it, I think. <laughs> yeah, this is how you should pray. And, and I don't think that the Lord's <laughs> Prayer is, is something that we're supposed to just, like we say it together as a church sometimes, but I don't think it's something that we're supposed to just say. It's actually a model of a prayer. And sometimes I know when I'm praying, I actually just go through that and... And I might start off with the first line, our Father in heaven. Then, then I think about the image of God in heaven and I praise him for, for the way that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And, and hallowed be your name. How holy is your name? And, and it's a spot to springboard into, into praising God for his holiness. And then praying for your kingdom to come. And I pray about... All of the ways that God wants to bring his kingdom in and, and how he wants to involve me or this church in God's kingdom. That's, that's the way we can use that prayer. And I think some of you do that. 
Yeah. So for those who didn't hear, um, Doug's question was, can you expand a bit more on the fig tree? It wasn't the season for figs, so you wouldn't expect there to be figs on it anyway. anyway. And um, we, we covered this last week, but I'll give you a quick thing here. Um, Jesus was using the fig tree merely as a metaphor. Okay, it, um, So it was a metaphor for Israel and the fruitlessness of the temple. So the temple worship, it all looked very lush on the outside and, and the Jewish religious system, it all looked very lush and there's plenty happening there, especially during the Passover feast. There would have been a lot going on and all the sacrifices, but it was fruitless. There was just no fruit. Yeah, so no, it wasn't Jesus throwing a tantrum, expecting something that wasn't supposed to be there. I think it was just a living, breathing metaphor that, that he used for the occasion. 